We're concluding today a sermon series on the plan from the beginning, a sermon series on Genesis chapters 1 through 22. It's, it's not even the whole of chapter 22. But we've talked about this fact that God has a plan, a purpose. And I don't know about you, but I know sometimes I struggle day to day thinking that there's a reason, thinking there's a purpose and a plan for my life, thinking there's a purpose and a plan for the world. Turn on the TV, you, you go on the internet and you look at the news feeds or something and it's, it's a mess. Then I look at my own life and I think, oh, why did I do that? I'm such a mess. Where's the plan? Where's the purpose? And I think in this tension that we feel of wanting a plan, wanting purpose, we'll put things into our life to give it purpose and to give meaning. Whether it's success or power, happiness, pleasure, we we chase after things. And the world sells it to us constantly. Oh, if you could get this, then your life will make sense. Or at least maybe just this moment will make sense. We crave for meaning. Ultimately, I think, all of the world events, all of history, from a worldly perspective, is a testimony to the fact that our way of finding meaning and purpose in a plan doesn't work. We fail time after time after time. We grab onto something thinking, this is it. This is what will bind us together. This is what will make the world a fun, happy, wonderful place for everybody. And then it doesn't work. But God has a plan. It was there right from the beginning. We looked at Genesis 1 and God setting up creation for his purposes to be this place to meet with us, for us to live in his perfect holy presence, enjoying the relationship with him, reflecting his glory, worshiping him. And I'm not talking about sitting around with little harps and playing kumbaya. I'm talking about every action that we do being a testimony to God's glory. And living every moment saying, this is what God made me to do and I get to bring him glory and I get to enjoy doing it. That's what we were made for. And then sin entered the picture. And we took that ability to worship God and we turned it away from God to anything else. We said, I'm going to go my own way. And sin entered the world. And we looked at the messiness of God's perfect plan being carried out in this world. And we've been tracing several of these major themes. And we're going to conclude today looking at Genesis chapters 18 all the way through 22. So we are going to fly. I'm going to give you an overview of some of these passages. We'll read snippets here and there. But I want to spend the bulk of our time in Genesis 22 as we conclude the series there. So as we enter into Genesis 18 and 19, one of the first things that that I see as I read these passages is that God has an interesting way of including us in his plan. This is not just God's plan for the world and and we're just rats running through a maze or, or just, you know, puppets on a string and he says, do what I tell you. This is God saying, I want to include you in my plan. I want to not only have a plan for you, but through you to carry out my plan in this world. And so I see a couple different ways that God involves us in his plan. And the first is through fellowship. In chapter 18, 1 through 15, we're at this point, if you remember some of the stories, and if not, I'll catch you up a little bit, but we have, uh, throughout Genesis, we've seen sort of this progression of sin and messiness and death, but also life that continued through about chapter 11. And then chapter 12 was this huge shift as God made a relationship with this one man named Abram. And he promised through Abram 
to not only bless Abram, but to be a blessing to the entire world. And we talked about that being the plan that then continues through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, to the cross of Jesus Christ, Christ, the death, burial, resurrection, to the church, to us today. And then we'll go to the end of Revelation later on and we'll see it fulfilled there for all eternity. But it has this, this beginning all the way back in Genesis 12. God reaching into the sinful, messed up world and saying, I will not let you go. I will carry out my plan. And so... The point in the story here is that Abraham's been promised children so that he could be the father of many nations, but he can't have kids. And his wife can't have kids. And they're too old. They're past the point of being able to have kids. So they have this promise, but they don't have the fulfillment of it. They've also been promised this land, but they were told to leave everything behind and go to this land God would show them. They don't own any land. They have no rights to it. He's a wanderer in the land. So they have the promise, but no fulfillment. And so we're picking up the story. Abraham's old. His wife Sarah is old. And they're still waiting for the fulfillment here to the promise. And in chapter 18, the Lord visits Abraham. And he visits him with what appear to be two angels. They're called angels. Angels can mean different things in Scripture. They're just basically a messenger. But it appears that God himself or an angel on behalf of God, but I think it's probably an actual appearance of the Lord to Abraham, but he comes and he meets with Abraham. And he has this dialogue with him. And Abraham meets these three visitors and he says, come over here, I want to prepare a meal, so just wait. Now, this was no small deal. I mean, they didn't just go to the freezer and pull out a hungry man dinner or something, pop it in the microwave. I mean, this was an all-day affair to prepare a lavish meal for these important guests. And so Abraham sits down with his guests. And it's a beautiful picture and a theme that runs through Scripture of God loving us so much and wanting this intimate relationship with us. And it shows itself literally in God sharing a meal with people. We see it here with Abraham. In the Exodus, we see as Israel's drawn out of Egypt and saved, they cross the Red Sea, they go up to Mount Sinai, they get the law. And do you know the beginning of that? God invites the elders of Israel up onto the mountain and they literally have a meal in the very presence of God. Then we get to the New Testament. The night before Jesus is arrested, he sits down and he shares a meal with his disciples. Now, he had eaten with them before, obviously. This was a special meal, a covenant promise-making meal about how he was going to save them. When we get to Revelation, as we'll read later, we see the picture of God with us. And we're about to enter the Christmas season, and Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. God wants this close fellowship with us. And so God shows up and has this moment with Abram. And then he passes on the promise. He restates it. Look at verses 10 through 15. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah passed the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a good question to remember. He says, I will return to you at the end of the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. 
And so this son, Isaac, is promised. And we'll meet him in a little bit. But it's this beautiful picture of this great, cosmic, sovereign, all-powerful God coming and hanging out with a family, meeting them right where they're at, talking with them in the day-to-day affairs of their life and saying, I have a plan for you. I know you're doubting. I know you're struggling. But let's keep going. Keep trusting in me. God involves us in his plan through fellowship, this relationship with him. He also involves us in his plan through prayer. This all-powerful, sovereign God says, I want you to talk to me. I want you to pray. I want you to ask for things. And I see this in chapter 16, or I'm sorry, chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. It's a very unique chapter because the Lord and these angels, whoever they were, they get up and they're about to go to Sodom. They want to go check it out, this wicked, evil, awful city. And it's this beautiful picture of a righteous God doing due diligence before his judgment. Now, God doesn't have to come down to check out the city. He knows full well what's going on there. But I think it's a testimony to us and to Abraham of the lengths to which God goes to before he judges anything. And so they're about to leave. And the Lord has this little dialogue with himself. Verse 17, Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. God's kind of talking to himself here. Should I share this with Abraham? And so he does. He says, verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So the presence of the Lord stays with Abraham and these two angels walk off towards Sodom and Gomorrah. An angel, I'm sorry, Abraham begins a dialogue with God. And he says to him, In verse 23, then Abraham approached him, this is the Lord, and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? And as the passage progresses, Abraham lowers that number over and over and over again. And eventually, at the end of the chapter, he gets down to 10. And he says, what if only 10 can be found there? Verse 32. And God says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Now, what's going on here? Is Abraham changing God's mind? Has God shown up with a plan and a purpose? And suddenly Abraham starts talking to him and God's like, yeah, okay, I can change. I can do that for you. No, see, God knows everything. God knew this conversation was going to take place. God knows exactly what's going to happen. Frankly, God knows he's not even going to find 10 righteous people in Sodom anyway, because it's a horrible, awful city. Why does he have this conversation with Abraham? Because that's the kind of relationship God wants with us. The all-powerful, sovereign God who knows the beginning from the end. As Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He is sovereign. But in his sovereignty, he chooses to invite us to discuss things with him, to pray to him. James 5.16 says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Why? Because God says, well, I really want to do this, but oh, you prayed for this, so I guess I have to do this. No. 
Because God knows what he's going to do, and as a part of his plan, he knows you're going to pray for that, and that's how he's going to accomplish his plan. God has chosen to accomplish his plan and his purposes through us. Your neighbor that needs to be saved, your coworker, your family worker that needs to be saved, it may very well be that God's plan for the salvation of that person involves you praying for them. So you need to join with God in this plan. We need to pray for people. We need to pray to the Lord for the world. We need to pray for the gospel to go out. We need to have the faith in God's sovereignty to say, I will join with him in my prayer. God's sovereignty in our prayers are not at odds with each other. They go right in with each other, trusting that God is powerful. So our involvement in God's plan, or or God involves us in his plan through fellowship, through prayer, our involvement in God's plan also takes place in a messed up world. And so we turn to chapter 19. Chapter 19 is one of these dark, dark chapters of Scripture. It's a bit of a PG-13, maybe even R-rated chapter in Scripture. What we see here is messed up. You see, the angels go down to this city, Sodom. And if you remember back earlier, when Abraham and his nephew Lot separated, where did Lot go? He went down near Sodom. Now, the text literally said he set up camp outside of Sodom. He looked at the land, he thought, this is great. And I think, I hope, He said, but that city, not so much. So I'm going to park my my tent. I'm going to sit out here. I'm going to say he had an RV. He parked his RV out. I don't think he did, but we'll say he did. I'll be close to Sodom. I won't go in it. It's a horrible city, but but the land around, it's really nice. I'll, I'll go here. In chapter 19, Lot is no longer living on the outskirts of Sodom. He is right there, right in the downtown. And as we walk through this passage, you'll see not only did Lot go into Sodom, but Sodom has gotten into Lot. His morals, his righteousness, his standards have all slipped and slipped and slipped and slipped. So Lot is in the city and these angels show up. And Lot meets them in the town square and invites them to his house saying, it's not safe to stay out here. And boy, was he right. They come home with him. And as evening approaches, the men of the town gather around I want to read for you verses 4 and 5. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. That is an evil, dark, and horrific verse. On so many levels, The inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah have twisted God's principles on sex and the relationship between male and female. They've redefined it. On top of that, they've said we have the right to abuse someone. We have the right to take them as our possession and do what we see fit with us. This traveler that we should have an obligation toward for hospitality and and protection, we actually say we have an opportunity for abuse. This is how evil the city had become. These were not a few bad apples. This was a bad city and a bad culture. Lot should never have been there. But you see, Lot was more righteous than the city in which he lived. Lot, in his comparative righteousness, was trying to do the right thing. Lot, in trying to be more righteous than his city, looked at the situation and said, I can't give up these men. That would be wrong. I've got a better plan. 
here's my daughters, take them. If that doesn't make you sick, there's something wrong with you. And I think that's the point of this passage. This is awful that Lot would do this. Now you might be saying, wait a minute, Dave, you just said Lot was righteous. No, no. I said Lot was trying to be more righteous than the city in which he lived. I learned something my first year in college from a professor. Hopefully I learned a lot of things from professors. But I learned one thing in particular. It has always stuck with me. And he said, the world exists kind of on a pendulum. And there are times in the history of the world that the world seems to be more righteous, cultural norms, basic rules or morals in in society. They seem to line up more with God's righteousness. So the world's kind of here, closer. There are other times throughout history the world swings far away, redefines morality, redefines culture and normal things, and and just completely rejects who God is. And the world kind of swings back and forth. In general, it progressively gets worse and worse. The problem is, as Christians, as people of God, we can start defining our righteousness in relationship to the world. So when the world is close to God, oh, we look great. Look, here's the world, and it's kind of awful. But here's us, and we're closer to God, so we're good. But what happens when the world shifts away? We're still looking at the world and saying, well, look, I'm not as bad as the world. I'm a lot better. I'm doing okay. Meanwhile, God's righteousness is way over here. I think that's exactly what happened a lot here. He had let go of who God is, something he had been brought up in. His righteousness, so-called, was defined according to the wicked city that he lived in, but he didn't realize in his own heart he was so messed up. And his family was going to pay the price for it. And so in this evil, awful situation, the angels with the power of God step up. They cause the crowd outside to go blind. They grab a hold of Lot, his wife, his daughters. They flee the city. And God wipes out the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But Lot... And his daughters are saved. Unfortunately, his wife was not. And then as if that wasn't bad enough, at the end of the chapter, as they're living in a cave in the hills, Lot's daughters decide they need children. They don't know how that's going to work. So they get their father drunk, and they both have a child from their father. This is messed up. But as we look at this passage and so many others in Scripture, we looked at Cain killing Abel. We looked at the flood and Noah and just the horrific unrighteousness of that generation. We looked at the Tower of Babel and their self-sufficiency. And it goes on and on and on throughout Scripture. And then hopefully we can leap off the pages of Scripture and take a good hard look in the mirror and say, yep, I see it there too. God's plan is carried out and takes place in a messed up world full of messed up people. And the truth is, if it didn't, there'd be no hope for anybody here, including me. We need to understand that we have got to run to Christ. Hold on to His righteousness and not our own. When God involves us, He gets the glory. Paul talks about we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 It's this beautiful picture that when we serve God, people shouldn't be amazed at us. They should look at us and say, wow, they must have a great God doing great things. So God gets the glory when he involves us, and we get an opportunity, an opportunity to worship, to bring glory to God, the very thing for which we were created. 
Paul writes in another place as he's sitting in a jail facing his possibly his imminent death, wondering maybe he's going to be released and live or maybe he's going to be killed. And he writes this to the church at Philippi in Philippians 1, 20 through 21. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, look, I don't know which direction God's plan's going. That's God's job. My job is whether I die or I live, I want to bring glory to God. People, we spend a lot of time, I think, worrying about what's God's will, what's God's plan, and it's good. But sometimes it's, should I move here? Should I move here? Should I take this job? Should I do this job? Should I get up and wear this in the morning or this in the morning? You know, we, we get ourselves all closed up and, and just stuck. What if we looked at those things instead and said, how can I glorify God here? And how can I glorify God here? And if God moves and this is his plan and I go in this direction, I will bring glory to God there. If God moves and I go in this direction, I will bring glory to God there. What if we focused on how much we can bring glory to God, whatever's going on in our life? I think we can do that day in and day out. So we see that God involves us in his plan. The other thing we see is that God in this messed up world, accomplishes his plan. And we come to chapter 20. Early on in this story of Abraham, uh, right after chapter 12, God meets with Abraham, gives him his promise to have children and to have a land. Right after that promise, when Abraham leaves his home country and goes to where God tells him, at the end of chapter 12, there's this unique story where Abraham ends up in Egypt and he lies about his wife. He says, oh, she's my sister. Because he has this wonderful idea that if he lies about his wife, that if somebody wants to take her, instead of killing him, they'll just take her. This is a horrible plan, in case you're wondering. This is messed up. But it's Abraham's way of saying, here's what God wants, here's how I'm going to accomplish it. That's usually a bad idea, okay? Our job is not to figure out how to accomplish God's plan. Our job is to trust that God is accomplishing his plan and how do we trust him and follow him? That's our job. And so Abraham has this idea. So now we're several chapters later and we have a very similar story. Abraham's in the promised land. He's settling down in a new area like he did. He moved around a lot. There's a big difference though. You see, at this point, Sarah is about 90 years old, and Abraham's even older. And yet, for some reason, Abraham thinks somebody might take my wife and might kill me to get her. There's various reasons why he might think that, even though she was past childbearing age, even though she was older. It's possible somebody would have done that simply to, as a way of forcing a treaty upon Abraham to get Abraham to cooperate Hey, I'm married to your sister. You need to cooperate with me. Those things happened. It's also possible that this story is is told out of sequence for effect. That's possible, and I'll get to that in a second. But what's interesting is where this story is, whether it happened at this moment or it was put here for another reason. The first story of Abraham lying about his wife is right after the promise is given, a promise for land and a child. Right after this story of Abraham lying about his sister, Abraham's going to receive a child, Isaac, 
And he's going to get a confirmation of his ability to live in the land, the fulfillment of God's promise. I think these stories are put in there as kind of as bookends to say God is doing something. Abraham tried to do it in his own way, but look at how God's going to accomplish his plan. So we move to chapter 21. Listen to chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him, Abraham gave the name of our Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was, excuse me, was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his, when Isaac, his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Then she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Along the way, Abraham had laughed when he first heard that they were going to have a child. Sarah had laughed when she heard about it. They both kind of had this attitude of, no way. How how could God possibly do this? And now the baby's born and they laugh again, but it's a different laughter. It's the laughter of, isn't God amazing? Look at what he did. You may be in a situation of struggling and waiting. And you're plodding along, charting your course, trying to stay faithful. You don't see where it's leading. You don't see where it's going, but God is calling you. You're staying faithful. Let me just encourage you, whether it's in this world or in heaven to come, there is laughter ahead. There is a joyous laughter of look at what our God can do. Because that's the kind of God we serve And so Isaac is born. Through 21, verses 8 through 21, I'm not going to go into this, but we pick up the story of Hagar and Ishmael, this son that Abraham had by another woman. Again, another way to fulfill the promise. Not a good idea. They end up being sent away. And then we come to verse 22. And I really struggled with this, 22 through 34, because I thought, Isaac is born. I, I get talking about Ishmael because it relates to Isaac. But now, this passage in 22 through uh, 34 of chapter 21, it seems so out of place. Because basically what it is is that Abraham settles down and this guy, Abimelech, comes to him and makes a treaty. Abraham digs a well. There's some argument over whether it's his well. They make another treaty. Yes, it's your well. And it's sort of like, who cares? Why is this in there? Here's the interesting thing. When Abimelech makes this treaty with Abraham, the treaty recognizes Abraham's right to live in the land. It's a powerful statement. Abraham has gotten to the point where he is so strong, he is so blessed by God, he's so powerful, he has such a large household that Abimelech's looking at this as a threat. And he's saying, look, this guy either becomes my enemy or I make a statement with him recognizing he has the right to live here. It's the first time that somebody really formally recognized that Abraham had the right. He didn't own the land. It was just Abimelech saying, you get to live here. And the well, if you dug a well and it was your well, you had the rights to that well. So this argument was a threat over Abraham having the right to live there. And so again, that treaty confirmed, Abraham, this is your land. You get to live here. So here we have this confirmation that God has accomplished his plan. Oh, man. I'm on the wrong one. Sorry about that. God accomplishes his plan. That's what we're talking about. 
And that's where we are. God has accomplished his plan. He brought the child. He brought Abraham into the land. He has taken possession of just a little bit of the land. There's a lot of work to go. But God is being faithful. So part three, which you've already seen. We must respond to God's plan. Chapter 22. Listen as I read some of this. And remember, here's Abraham finally, finally, after decades receiving the confirmation, the promise, the child that he was promised. And listen to what happened. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrificing him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. I'm not sure we can fully understand what Abraham was being asked. If you're a parent, I'm sure you can begin to understand how awful it would be for God to tell you to kill your own child. That's horrific and awful. But it's even more with Abraham. As bad as that is, as awful as that is, this is the promise. Everything that God has set up to this point hinges on the future of Isaac and God says, kill him. So Abraham has a choice. Is he going to figure out God's plan his own way? not kill his child, say, well, this can't be right. This isn't the way to do this. Or he's going to trust God and give up all the promises God has given him. Abraham has put it in an absolutely impossible situation. There's no clear good way out, except one, to simply trust God. No matter how little it makes sense, to simply step forward in faith and trust. Now, Please don't leave at this point because you'll think we have a God that tells people to kill children and that's not true, okay? So if you have to go to the bathroom, just hold it. Not yet. What does Abraham do? Just as when God called him the first time, he gets up and he goes. He obeys. And so we'll pick it up in verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, could you imagine this conversation with your son? Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Do you hear the amount of faith saturating, just dripping from that statement? This is Abraham. I think in my own words, it's Abraham saying, I have no idea how this is going to turn out, but God's going to provide. God had provided Isaac. Abraham had very little that he could claim to do with this. This was an absolute miracle. He's saying, I trust God's going to work this out. Somehow, some way, I don't know how. That's God's job. My job is to trust and to follow. Verse 9, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood, then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. Abraham's all in at this point. All of his excuses, all of his ability to figure this out on his own, all of his messed up efforts, all of it are gone. And he is saying, I'm trusting God. I don't get this. It makes no sense. And then verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. I wish I knew how Abraham said this. Here I am. Thank goodness you stopped me. Yes, 
Please tell me to do something else. Please don't make me do this. Here I am. And the words came to him. Do not lay a hand on that boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham looks up and he sees a ram caught in the thicket. God provides a sacrifice in the place of Isaac. What faith. Abraham responds to God's plan through faith. Faith is trusting that God is who he says he is. It's trusting that God has a plan, that he's carrying out that plan. And the more we read scripture, the more we get to know the God of the plan and the plan that God has. And this is such a beautiful picture of the fact that we deserve in our sin. We are guilty of death. We deserve death. The hand of God should be up over us. Yet in His mercy, He says, wait. And then He takes us off that altar. And unlike Abraham where He said, don't kill your only son, He says, I will take my son and I will put him in your place. And he will take your punishment. We have to respond through faith. John 3.16 said, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever, what? Believes in Him. Believes in Him. There's the faith. We have to trust Him. His way shall have eternal life. But somebody might say, wait a minute. Wait, you got to have obedience. Yes, you have to have obedience. Look at Abraham. Look at all the steps he went through. This is not Abraham sitting at home saying, yes, yes, kill my child. Oh God, I'm a man of great faith. I believe this. Abraham got up, he packed the wood, he packed the knife, he took his child, he was ready to do it, he was following. But see, we think of faith and obedience like they're separate things. They are never separate in Scripture. Faith always, always expresses itself through obedience. You cannot have faith without obedience. Obedience is the outward expression of faith. If there is no obedience, there is no faith. So we see this in the life of Abraham. This plan that began all the way back in creation, continued through Abraham, goes through the Old Testament, includes us today. God has the same plan to be with you, for you to live in his presence forever and ever, perfect and holy and righteous. That plan has been threatened by your sin, my sin, everybody's sin. Yet God put his son on the altar in our place, put him to death for our sins, rose Him the new life so that we can have new life in Him. That's the plan. We see throughout Scripture where our plan leads, and it's not pretty. And we need to trust in faith. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, wait a minute, Pastor Dave, I'm not that messed up. I mean, really, I'm not all that bad. Look at Scripture. Read where human sin leads us. Frankly, turn on the TV and look at it. And by faith, I would challenge you to accept we are messed up. I don't think it takes that much faith to accept that, to be honest. Maybe it's easier for me to see it in my own life. But also by faith, we can accept that God has a plan. Turn with me to Revelation 21. I told you we would end here. Starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He's recalling creation here. At the end of Scripture, at the end of history, before eternity, before God's perfect kingdom set up once forever, this is what it says. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Plan fulfilled. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God. They will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Here we see again two ways. God's plan will be fulfilled. Sin will be removed. God's perfect presence will be set up here with his people, righteous and holy in his sight. But we can either have our sin removed by Jesus taking our place or we're going to have to take that place ourselves. If we don't have the faith to accept Jesus as our Savior, then this passage is saying we have to pay the penalty for our own sin. That's not what God wants. So just like with Abraham, he has provided a sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, What a Savior. What a salvation. What a plan for Your glory and our good. What power to continue this plan and the messed up lives of these sinful, messed up people. People a lot like us. Father, what an offer of grace and mercy and hope. You never wanted Isaac or any other child to be sacrificed. You said as much in your law not to ever do this. You did this to show us something, to give us a picture of what you did when you didn't stop your hand before your own son, Jesus Christ. You allowed him to die in our place. God, I pray if there's anyone here trying to go about this life, trying to find purpose and meaning on their own apart from you, May they run to the cross of Jesus Christ this morning and say, I believe. That's my Savior. That's my place He took on the cross. He did that for me. I want the new life through His resurrection, through the eternal life that He promises. That's what I want. I want the plan for which I was made for. Because God, we can have it. And for that, we are eternally grateful. In your name we pray. Amen.